Welcome to the Dividend Cafe weekly market commentary focused on dividends in your portfolio and dividends in your understanding of economic life. Well, hello and welcome to what is indeed uh, the very last COVID and markets podcast brought to you by the Dividend Cafe of the Bonson Group, but by no means the last Dividend Cafe podcast and by no means the last podcast with my whole team uh, here, the investment committee. Um, it's been so long, it feels like this is our, our first, not our last, but actually uh, for those of you watching the video, you can see I'm surrounded by the investment committee of the Bonson Group, and we're going to have a little discussion here today as kind of a special farewell to the COVID and Markets podcast. Um, the reason that we are getting rid of the COVID Markets podcast is elaborated on in a little longer form today at COVIDandmarkets.com. I wrote a little piece kind of explaining why we're moving past it. What we're not moving past is a daily communication around the markets. In fact, the um, response that we got from the COVID uh, daily missive has led us to decide we're going to keep that going. And on Thursday, October the 1st, uh, will be our inaugural edition of the dctoday.com, which will be a daily market update. We'll run every market day, Monday through Thursday. And then, of course, Friday, you'll get the weekly dividend cafe commentary. So the distinction would be Monday through Thursday, we're going to have a just kind of quick rundown on markets, summary of what's happening in the news cycle, um, you know, Fed announcements, various uh, uh, macroeconomic developments that we think are relevant to your understanding of the markets and what's happening in the world around you. And we're going to try to make it short, succinct, understandable, but still informative. And then, of course, Friday, we'll continue with the weekly Dividend Cafe we've been doing for many, many years. If there's an important COVID announcement, if there's something sub substantial that needs to be discussed around the coronavirus, we'll include that into the DC today. But um, I am very transparent on the fact that I believe we needed to terminate COVIDandmarkets.com as a daily offering for the very reason that I've been writing about COVID over the last uh, almost two months now, which is I think COVID itself is behind us as it pertains to being a prominent market story do not believe that coronavirus is not still out in, in the community and capable of infecting people and indeed capable still of being uh, a potentially fatal uh, disease. The, the virus is real. Viruses don't go away. Influenza has not gone away. It's, it's a substantial part of both our medical reality right now and will be. And, and we you know have a lot of uncertainty around where those things go. But what we have seen are things that we did not know when I first started writing this missive six months ago, when the market volatility began six months ago. We did not know um, the incredible survivorship rate, the, the, the fears early on of 4 or 5% fatality rates uh, proved to be um, a, a magnitude of 15 too high, it appears. And right now we're looking at 99.98% survival rate, thank God, for people under the age of 50. So we most certainly believe it's a very serious condition. It's been incredibly serious to, of course, the medical reality of our country and society, but it's been very serious to economic well-being as well, and it's necessitated a lot of writing and focus around it. We went through a very volatile month of March, went through a total, complete breakdown in all capital markets in that period, both equity, fixed income, and other and now a lot of recovery, a lot of zigs, a lot of zags, and here we are. And so, as a matter of fact, I was watching a little uh, tape that they had put together um, on my team of some of the, the like new uh, media appearances I've done around it. 
and and we're looking at what the market was on the day of all these appearances. And the fact of the matter is, as we're sitting here now getting ready to close up September, uh, um, the Dow's about in the same place it was back at the beginning of June. It's just it's been higher. It's been lower. Um, but we kind of zigged and zagged around, which was something that was very much within our predictions of what would happen sometime back. We dropped a ton uh, because we didn't know if the world was going to end or not. The world didn't end, and we went up a ton. Now we're zigging and zagging around a kind of uncertain economy. So uh, do not take our um, moving past covidmarkets.com to the D.C. today as a sign that we're not taking coronavirus seriously. We take it very seriously, but we also do not believe it is the prominent thing affecting investors. And we want to be investor forward in what we're doing. And so I think it's a good symbolic change of, of what we believe in and how we want to execute upon that. And we pray fatalities will stay low. The fatality rate will stay low. The severity of these cases seems to be very, very low right now. And um, if we're going to sit here and continue talking every day about cases, even as we're wanting everyone else to understand that cases are not um, a prominent metric in uh, economic life, let alone medical reality, um, I think we're, we're kind of undermining our own message. So that's the scoop there. Uh, today's COVIDmarkets.com, by the way, the final missive, does have a whole lot of information, probably that information you're listening to the podcast right now that you're waiting to get. But instead, I'm going to turn it over to discussion of my investment committee. And if you want to know uh, how many people died in Florida yesterday and how good the uh, positivity rate in California is today and some of those you know, typical analytics you're used to, and there's actually quite a bit there, I really, really encourage you to go to. Uh, I'm going to make you go to the website for it today, uh, covidmarkets.com. Um, and by the way, in the midst of today, there is a link to an article, which is one of my favorite articles I've read. And I've read about 10,000 in the last six months, literally, uh, medical journals and all kinds of things. I hope to God I never have to read again. Um, but there is a link to a transcript of an interview with three of the most prominent and impressive uh, medical minds that I've been following daily through this entire incident, and they all three were interviewed together by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, and it made for some of the best 20 pages of reading on COVID, and so that link is found in today's missive. So there's the whole setup, the whole intro, and with that, I'm going to welcome Robert, Julian, Brian, and Dea, the full investment committee of the Bonson Group, back to our table here in our Newport Beach studio. Um People watching the video right now can probably tell that we're not wearing masks because they wouldn't be able to hear us in the video. But they, what they can't tell is that we are safe and distanced and that I, we hand out hand sanitizer around here as if it were, you know, candy. coffee yeah. or candy, right? Coffee and candy. <laughs> okay, we've learned a lot. We've gone through a lot. A lot has happened. Missive was a great idea. Everyone hopefully got something out of it. And now we're ready to push past it. <clears throat> I guess I'd like to ask all of you as we kind of push past that into the next phase, into the fourth quarter of the year. Obviously, we're coming up on not only the end of September, but the end of Q3. But, Robert, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, six months plus change of a pretty little hellish period of time in the market in, in, uh, for a lot of people in medical uh, affairs and, of course, in the economy, sure. the well-being of many in our society. Some of your takeaways. So two two takeaways I have, the first of which I think served as a, one of the primary catalysts for, for you starting the COVID and markets missive is that, you know, finding good real-time information can be really hard. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. You know, we, we have the ability to look at our screens and see 
you know, data, whether it's, you know, stock prices, volume, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we take it at face value. When, when COVID hit, there was so much information coming out, but so much of that information was just so disingenuous in its delivery. And, and a lot of the errors that, you know, I saw that uh, certainly a lot of us saw were, you know, there were behavioral finance errors. There was, you know, confirmation bias, poor sampling, just, just made the data very unreliable. And I think going forward, maintaining a a healthy skepticism of of what we're reading on our screens and elsewhere will be a good best practice we were also able to see through a lot of our research partners which which ones and there were there were many um, which ones were dynamic and able to respond to new types of analysis very very quickly you know statistics is statistics right but when you're dealing with financial statistics moving over to health statistics there are nuances that make it different and, and challenging to to switch over and I think we were able to see a lot of our partners um, have a very, very high, um, you know, IQ, obviously, in terms of being able to to make that 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 change. The the other thing that I'm going to continue taking away and talking to people about is, uh, you know, asset allocation. And ordinarily, people think of that across asset classes like stocks, bonds, cash, etc. But I think appropriate allocation within asset classes is very, very important as well. And security selection goes along with that. So, you know, year to date, we saw, you know, various types of equities, and that's what people want to talk about, do do well or do not so well. Um, but let me focus on real estate as just an example, because people ordinarily think of asset selection in the active versus passive space for, for equities. But if someone was a, a real estate investor this year, you know, a, a REIT ETF or something like that, an index approach, they, they probably got smoked uh, even, even year to date um, across the board. But if someone went through and had a very high quality uh, you know, perhaps a private or, or just a you know publicly traded manager, they might not be doing so poorly. And so, I think it's important to consider um, you know that security selection not just in the context of equities, but across all different asset classes on a forward basis. Yeah. Well, and and do you think that that was a, a principle that was true before COVID that sort of got revealed and became a bit more apparent mm-hmm. during COVID, or was it maybe something that represents a paradigm shift? Well, it's, it's the classic, you know, pe- people don't care about security selection when there's no dispersion. When everything's yeah. going well and there's there's the indexing, everything's doing well, someone says, hey, why why are you doing a couple hours of due diligence on this fund when I can just buy the index and do just as well? Well, that, that extra effort shows in times of duress. So I think it's, it's not at all a paradigm shift. It's just sometimes it takes a crisis to show you uh, what works and, and what doesn't, you know, yeah. stre- a, stre- a real stress test, essentially. Very good point. Julian, what about you? It's been uh, quite an experience. You've been right at ground zero of the, the research and significant amount of kind of bottom-up assessment of its impact to portfolio companies, sectors. Where do you think are some of the great lessons of the last six months? Yeah, uh, yes. I want to talk about really my focus, which is, you know, company-specific and across sectors. I've, I've seen, you know, companies going through hell and some not really being impacted or, or you could argue that benefited from, from this whole crisis being, you know, t- you know, in the tech sector or being in e-commerce in particular, where, you know, they say basically you had a 10-year, a uh, you know, leap in six months in just, you know, the gain of market share. Some of these companies have had uh, from, you know, people not being able to go uh, uh, shop and just uh, shopping online. But I guess what's really interesting, um, you know, and the lessons for me uh, during this crisis is to uh, to see how companies were resilient and able to adapt to the uh, whatever environment and and uh, do whatever they can to survive. And that started with you know supply chain issues when the, this was still a Chinese thing, and we thought, okay, where was exposure to China? How are they going to manage uh, this and be able to serve the clients? And then it became more like an end market issue, or, or you know, with the fourth shutdowns, like who is uh, going to be able to to survive and pretty quickly when you have the Fed intervene and then the, the federal government 
we realized that the the, uh, the world is not ending, and you know all these companies were able to uh, finance themselves, and you know that's really was the big I think turning point is that when they were able to raise billions on a very cheap level on the debt markets, and and so by time basically, now you you can see the uh, you know at least the the end of the chin- the tunnel. You see that the path to survival, and then you you go back to uh, to your model and think about. You know, when you look at actually valuing any businesses, you look at free cash flow, you look at the cash flow they're going to generate for forever, really, when you buy a business, well, you know, whatever it is, it is even in an, an apartment or any business, private equities, when they run their models, it's really discounting the future cash flows. And when what's interesting is if you think about, you know, if you've done a, what you call a discounted cash flow analysis, um, the value is really based on the cash flow you, dis- you, you, know, you project for the next, and usually you do 10, 15 years and then you have a terminal value and you discount and then you have your discount rate. And um, so when, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I was doing my models at, at Lehman Brothers, you used to have a, a cost of capital that was 8, 9, 10%. And so at the time, like the half of your value was coming from the cash flow of the next 10 years and the other half was coming from the terminal value. And these days with the rates being so low, your cash flows are really, uh, the value of your business is really based on the, much more on the terminal value, so much more on the future cash flows than the next five, ten years. So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, if you look at the value of a business having, uh, you know, one or two years of, you know, cash flow that are really impacted by the the virus, you know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, it's gonna be scary maybe. But if you think about it, like it's not, they haven't really been impacting over the long term. And uh, if anything, you could argue that with the rates being so low. These days, you know, I think that's the much bigger story to me is, you know, coming out of this crisis. If you assume, I think we, it's fair to assume that we're going to have a vaccine and we're going to come back to, you know, life as we knew it probably within a year or two maximum. Then, but what's going to stay is, uh, you know, low rates. I and mean, we know the Fed is, let's say, until 2023 at least. We have the 10-year at 0.7%, the 30 years at 1.4%. So well, how do you make a return? And And so if you do the same... If you discount your future cash flows on these, you know, on this new, uh, you know, the rate of returns you can generate, then that gives you valuation that are really uh, attractive in equities. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so the the changes in monetary policy do more than just the short term intent of the changes in monetary policy. They re-rate all of capital markets, particularly the risk assets that you research day in and day out. Yeah, exactly. So I guess to me that's you know if the. the the conclusion is there was a moment where we don't know if, you know, uh, uh, the world as we know it was going to, you know, end or not. But now we well, I, I, would, think I would like to <laughs> say that I, I actually did know that the world I guess. was not going to end. I mean, end. there was a period where it was really yeah. scary, but we're way past that point, And now it feels like. I don't know why I would have felt that way with all the media was doing to calm people <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, I don't either. It was pretty calm on the media. Yeah. Hell, hell was coming, I think, was that Yeah, I guess. Uh, the, I mean, I just remember flames on, on just, the no, news channels. The yes. Fed and government, was, they were so fast, I think, reacting. I mean, comparing to 2008. And of, so, and even like, if you think like 2008, they learned from the mistake of 1932. Uh, and now in 2020, they learned from the mistake of 2008. I think they were much faster. And yeah. that probably made a big difference. So, Brian, there's a good segue, I guess, to, to um, the... 2008-2009 and now going through the covid moment um similarities differences you know share a little bit of what you've taken away from covid and and if there are parallels to the financial crisis sure yeah i mean i 
I would say first, I mean, um, there's definitely parallels. Um, and at the heart of it, I mean, the conversations that I had back in 2008 and 2009 with clients and the conversations that I had in March and April and May with every every client um, are similar, you know, and I, I'm grateful that people were able to kind of listen to what, you know, what I had to say and, and were able to sort of stick with it. But um, I would put it in context and just say that this sell-off I mean, typically the, the average kind of bull market to bear market takes about 10 months or so. Like, you know, the market sort of, sort of rolls over. We kind of start to get signs of recession and you get a 10 month period where you kind of get into that 20% decline, that, that bear market. This happened in 16 days. So it was a 16 day period of, of an absolute kind of you know, bloodbath in markets. And my takeaway and what reminded me of 08 was really within the credit side of things. It was a completely dislocated credit market in the middle of March. We were trying to get bids on individual QCIPs of corporate bonds and municipal bonds for people, and bid-ask spreads were 10 points wide. I mean, it was just a total mayhem thing. And what I would say is that part reminded me of the 08 time, but the causation was quite different. Back then, it was sort of like an organic deterioration of credit. You know, housing market was falling apart. It was toxic subprime in, inside of these bonds, and we couldn't find a value, and, and it was sort of organic. This time, it was just a pure deleveraging environment. It was like everything had to be sold in three days, and there were no buyers, and, and we experienced that directly. Um, and those are scary times, and I don't make, mean to sensationalize it more here other than just in a 20-year career. You know, th- these things have only happened a few times, and so there's things to be learned from it. Um, but what I would say, as in 08 versus this time, you know, it was the Federal Reserve that came in. And, and the question I get from clients the most now is, hey, Brian, you know, the economy's terrible. Nobody's going out to eat. Nobody's on airplanes. How come the stock market is up? And that was the same conversation I had in kind of April, May, and still in June and July and all those things. And it really is the answer is the Federal Reserve. And, you know, the, the amount of of tools and money that they put into this thing to stop us from having um, a depression essentially is for the record books. It's, it's far more than what they did in 2008. And it's phenomenal. I, I wrote down some of the things I won't read them all off, but all the facilities to save the commercial paper market, the money market funds, the muni market, the corporate bond market, you know, you just go on and on and on. And it, you know, they, they did an unlimited amount of quantitative easing, not, not like 500 billion a month or 700 billion, like just infinity sign next to it. You know, they were just going to buy all of the treasuries and mortgages until the economy uh, was able to function again. And, and I think that's all just phenomenal. I'm not saying it was a good thing. And I'm not saying that I'm glad it happened. I'm just saying it is what happened. And that is the reason why one of the main reasons why you had just the support in markets, it was an expansion and balance sheet of not twice as much as 08, but what 50% more in the, in the course of a month versus, you know, several year period, um, over the financial crisis. So, um, you know, I, I would say that, um, at the end of it, um, and, and we talked about, and I'll kind of end it end with here. So, so huge reaction from the fed. One of the main reasons why it answers that question, why is the market doing well when the economy is not doing well? They're two different things. Um, there's far more money in the system now than there was. And, um, and there's less goods and services, and so prices have gone higher. Uh, that And what I would say about markets, and we've kind of talked about whether you want to say S&P 500 or something, kind of being common, you said June, I think, you know, markets now are about where they were back in June. And if you kind of put that chart next to the Fed balance sheet, and you kind of put them together, they're going to look almost the same. So you have expansion of balance sheet, you have S&P 500, and now, now balance sheet is going sideways, and S&P 500 is going sideways. I don't think those two things are... Um, a coincidence. I think they're directly a tr- related. A trillion and a half added in March, April, uh, into May, 
eighty billion a month since. Mm-hmm. So that flattening of market does seem, uh, at least on a chart, to correlate. Yeah, with yeah, I don't flattening the market. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, they, the the Fed even went out and, and started buying ETFs, so perpetual securities, basically stocks that represent a basket of bonds. Um, th- those things have all tapered off too, so they're no longer really doing that. In fact, actually, of the money they had to pull that trigger, they really didn't execute all that much. But yeah. so, anyways, uh, in my in my opinion, you know, the, the the extraordinary action of the Federal Reserve through this COVID pandemic was one for me for the record book, similar to 08, but much bigger, and it answers one of the questions that most people have, which is why are why are asset prices going up if things are bad? Mm-hmm. Well, I yeah. can't resist temptation. I wasn't going to do this, but before I move on today, I do want to get a little more granular. Because otherwise, I'll end up getting granular in my closing comments, and I won't give you a chance to interact with Let's it. Let's do it. I, I, do you think that what they did was more aggressive than what they did 08, 09? And if so, I assume that would be because you're saying the size and the speed at which they acted. Yeah. But is there also room to point out that TALF 1.0 in early 09, that was far more provocative or far more well, controversial, but had much more of a shock and awe impact on markets because for the first time – they, it was oh nine for the first time that they were Losses. coming in and buying loans, right. buying mortgage backed securities, right. coming into commer- giving a backdoor way to buy the asset backed securities market structure credit. It, it, a lot of people think they're more tame this time with some of that. They only stuck with triple A's, they only stuck with conduit, CMBS, they only stuck with agency, residential mm-hmm. mortgage. And in doing that this time with TALF 2.0, they were just doing what they'd already done before, where before they had never done it before. I would argue that the Fed was quicker and bigger this time, but more shock and awe last time. That's a great, good point. I mean, I think anytime you have a, in com- a, excuse me, in composition, shock in and composition, awe. yeah. Anytime there's a first, I guess, uh, and I remember yeah. the feeling I had back then was. I, it was probably more of a dramatic feeling I had. And actually, you're right. I mean, the, the problem last time, it was this sort of, where does it ever end? If you have a packaged security and, and 10% of it is, is subprime or junkie, what's the value of it? Is it zero? Is it 70 cents in the dollar? I don't know. Let's have the Fed just go out and solve that problem and buy it all. Um, I think that is a shock and an awe thing. I think the size and the speed this time around is what kind of does it for me, um, more a little more so. And um, you know, but, um, you know, and, and technically, I mean, they, through these SPVs, I mean, they, they took money from treasury, they levered it up 10 to one, and then they were able to buy, like I said, perpetual securities, which is a first, um, all that other stuff is loans and it has due dates on it. Granted it, it was junk and you know, whether it was going to come to a par or not, who knows, but this time around just buying a security that has no maturity date on it is something new. Um, and they didn't do it directly. They did it through that levered fund through the treasury, right. but you know, the, the combination of size, mm-hmm. um, you know, out of the box stuff, uh, infinity uh, QE, um, you know, you know, removing reserve requirements, um, you know, all of those things I think were, were pretty significant and needed. Um, and, you know, balance sheet going from what was it, four to seven, and probably will end up somewhere around 10 at the end of this thing mm. uh, versus going from one to four. Or something yeah. like so, Dan, before your, your comments, was what the Fed did needed, yes or no? Um, so I that's a good question. Yes or no? Uh, I I would say I would say yes, but primarily, um, just in order to thaw up the credit markets. I don't know if they needed to be going in and buying ETFs. Uh, I don't know if they needed to be you know extending to this to this level these liquidity liquidity lending programs. Uh, but as far I mean, I'm glad I'm not in, you know somebody dictating policy. But uh, but as far as uh, being uh, you know standing there as a as as 
and saying to the uh, you know credit markets that we're here to support uh, you know you know any any and all transactions regarding debt with with you guys. Um, you could you know there's a lot of moral hazard argument sure. there going down the line that we could talk about for hours. Um, but so, Dad's so going to give us his breakdown. COVID well, that's, lessons. that's a really tough question. I'm on the fence about that. Seven yeah. seconds. Y- yes or no? Fed activities were necessary. Yeah, can, can I have a caveat to it? <laughs> it's counting it, into it's, seven it's, seconds. It's, it's a yes, but because they had to fix policy errors on the other side of things. Okay, fair enough. Julian, mm-hmm. yes or no? Seven seconds. I say yes based on the 20 years of what they've done. You cannot just take the candy away after 20 years of, you know. So, so is your answer yes? It was necessary to do because of other bad things they had done before. Yes. Okay, Brian. I think they had to do it. It's not that I wanted them to do it, and that they should have done it, or necessarily, but it's more of the collateral, the damage of not doing something in that period of time would have been more than the future potential collateral damage that may be, may come of it. Yeah. Um, and it's also the system that we're in, and so my answer is operating in a system that exists. All right. I will answer my own question <laughs> as soon as Dea is uh, done with his. Lessons of COVID. I, I will also add that if, and whether the Fed had acted or not, I do think that um, through prices, things would have eventually fixed themselves after a certain amount of time and after a certain amount of pain. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to your answer. And a lot of times with these Fed actions, I think uh, a big part of it that makes a difference in terms of markets is the announcement, just as much as the facilities actually being open, the, uh, the buying of some of these assets. Uh, because really what's causing all this volatility and, and all this gyration is fear. And if the you know, Fed comes out, their announcement, they're backstopping everything, that s- starts to assuage a lot of those concerns. And additionally, and, and you know, it's interesting when you talked about the shock and awe. I, I mean, I uh, may not have lived it as real time as you guys regarding the uh, uh, great financial crisis. But it was kind of shocking to me some of the assets yeah. that they were willing about willing to buy, and especially what happened at the uh, at the fiscal level uh, regarding the CARES Act. And although, and what was so surprising for me is I I had remember thinking at the time that okay, I understand that there's a lot of people out there that need money. Julian mentioned that a lot of businesses that are doing really you know they're doing better as a result of this, and that's clearly true uh, if if you look at their financials. But there are also a lot of businesses out there that absolutely could not function, uh, you know, with a government shutdown and absolutely needed some sort of stimulus. And although I, I knew that the uh, willingness on the behalf of the government to, to, to give these people uh, all the stimulus they needed was there, I wasn't sure the ability was there. And it was really remarkable to me how fast that they were able to get loans uh, in the hands of small businesses or, you know, uh, non-recourse loans in the hands of small businesses and essentially uh, grants in, in the hands of individuals. So that part was incredibly surprising to me and, and does more so to add to the notion that there is this Fed put and that there is this government type of backstop, uh, you know, no matter what kind of pay, pain is, being, is happening in the economy. And I think it's important to remember, to go back to Robert's point about asset allocation, not making any knee-jerk reactions, that, uh, you know, yeah, there may be a crisis and there may be some really bad fundamental deterioration, but you don't know what the any sort of response is on the federal level to that and how quickly things are reversed. So uh, a lot of times the best thing to do in a situation like that is to just sit on your hands. Uh, Brian talked about a little bit about leverage, about how, look, maybe your, lever- your, your situation regarding leverage to your portfolio isn't exactly constant. Uh, if you're using your portfolio as collateral, and uh, you know your your lender is saying that they're going to extend to you, you know, seventy cents on the dollar. 
a lot of those arrangements are subject to change uh, in 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 times as, like that as as, did, as we saw as we saw exactly <laughs> so um you know it's a very scary thing to all of a sudden have uh this arrangement change and you owe a lot of a lot of money in a very short period of time which does uh does an incredible amount of destruction to your wealth and your ability to achieve your goals over the long term so it's important to realize that your leverage stay at healthy levels and also to Robert's point about the dishonesty of the media, I, I remember seeing a study where they actually looked at people's intake of news and around 1% was fake news. So it's not the fake news problem. It's the the media lying to you by omission and misrepresenting the objective reality of what's going on by focusing on uh, focusing on cases that uh, that are able to create the sensationalism and and. Lying by omission. Right, exactly, lying by omission. So, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of this to me is a reinforcing of certain principles and certain beliefs uh, that existed prior to this uh, crisis. But uh, the speed and the uh, just the ability of the Fed or or the government of both the Fed and fiscal level is very surprising to me. I guess Uh maybe on that point, I I guess the big difference with the great financial crisis is that there was no one to blame, like, um, you know, Two thousand eight was a bit harder because the banks, you could argue, were responsible here. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, it's nobody's fault. So, much mercy easier for the Fed to act quickly. That's if anybody's fault, it'll be China. So, they had all right, you know, to uh, yes. to go um, and uh, and intervene. And it'll, I'm sure they didn't have the moral hazard that they had back, you know, ten years ago. That, that's absolutely right. There wasn't a bad actor that enabled Congress to move at the speed that it moved, and which played a huge part. Uh, you know, I guess in the, the, yeah their ability to move quickly. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it, it was what enabled them to do it without the political backlash. Um, we we also had uh, when TARP passed about $9 trillion in national debt and we had when CARES Act was passed $21 trillion in national debt. So there was um, a little more uh, societal anger when TARP was passed than, than CARES Act because the anger would have only been directed just kind of – either at China or the abstract virus itself. But the debt ramifications and the overall financial picture were certainly, were certainly different. But, the, but the, um, the CARES Act was as big as it was because uh, I think a lot of people realized they were not going to have an easy chance getting another one done after that, and that's proven to be the case. Sure. And they've been all log jammed mm-hmm. now politically here for a couple months with whatever mm-hmm. it is they're trying to do further. And uh, I think all of you have really highlighted – I mean it's so much. I'm Now I'm kind of down on myself that we were trying to do this thing a little quicker because I think we could sit here and talk for another hour or two on a lot of the lessons. And obviously th- between now and the end of the year, we're going to have plenty of chance to continue talking about applications, talking about what we learned. You brought up an interesting point about the research partners. Um, there's media outlets that I don't intend to ever listen to again. I'm, I'm so uh, disappointed in them from this event. And I've had 25 years listening to one particular network, and I don't care if I ever hear another peep from them again because it wasn't just simply a a kind of stressful interjection into our lives in March. It was a morally offensive one as far as I'm concerned. But I also learned a lot about our research partners. I think some of the different people that I digest research from, some of whom we pay, you know, significant amounts of money to, 
Um, I got a chance to see real value added from some research partners. We gained some new partners through this period of time, and there are others that um, I've been paying pretty good amount of money to for research for some time that I, I wasn't particularly impressed with what, what they came up with. And so that, that, that's been um, a good learning experience, just kind of inside baseball for us in our process, but um, top-down research. The issues about the Fed and, and the fiscal side, why, why don't we agree with this conclusion, that um, we're not in the bottom of the ninth inning? Okay, like at the end of the game, you get a chance to go back and say, you know, well, should they have thrown that pitch and should they have done this and that? Um, I don't know what inning we're in. I do know that when Bernanke took victory laps about the uh, monetary policy decisions made out of the financial crisis and we were still at the zero bound, I took offense to it. I believed that you had to unwind the monetary, the aggressive monetary steps you taken to declare that it all worked. You, you couldn't just simply do the emergency measure, get out of the financial crisis, and then say it worked. You need the full thing to play out. And just as much as I say that, I don't believe the whole thing is going to play out. I think we're stuck to it. I think we're now in a perpetual mm-hmm. um, situation. I completely agree with Julian that to the degree there was some justification for the actions, it was a justification that came about of having to deal with the rules that – they had previously set themselves. But um, I am resistant to the idea that thank God they did it because the thank God they did it abandons or or or, or uh, fails in the first economic principle Henry Hazlitt taught me or before him Friedrich Bastiat. I'm not, I can't look at thank God they did it only from the vantage point of what happened in March of 2020. It's very possible that our kids in, in August of 2034 – will not be saying, thank God they did it. We don't know yet what those ramifications will be. We cannot measure in the present the cost benefits mm-hmm. of those decisions. What, what, what I am, and this is what I wrote down as the single takeaway all, uh, that I think a lot of you guys captured through different points, but I'll just sort of try to summarize it all together, is just a concept of trade-offs. I'm fine with people saying, thank God for CARES Act, it did this, as long as they don't say or ignore, but it's also doing this. Absolutely. That the Fed did this, and that was really helpful, but it's also doing this. There are um, actions in the weeds of what the Fed did that were really good. There were actions in the weeds of what they did that were really dumb. But the whole point of what you were making was they just said, we're pulling out bazooka, we're doing yeah. it day one. Yeah. And and so like they kind of thought the flexing of corporate ETF uh, w- would mm. would be a big deal. It turned out not to be. Probably wasn't even necessary. Might have set a bad precedent. It was frankly a little bit silly, but it wasn't really a policy decision. It was just sort of part of Bazooka. a bigger picture of hey, we got to go show capital markets. We're going to do whatever we have to do to keep the world turning. So yeah, there there's a lot going on that's going to uh, exist far beyond. COVID-19, the ramifications of CARES Act, the ramifications of uh, Fed interventions. But the first Fed intervention that made all these Fed interventions possible, you said the SPVs, the concept of taking Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act that gives them the ability under exigent circumstances to do crazy things, still limited by the Federal Reserve Act itself. The notion of saying, okay, well, one of the things they can do is create a special purpose vehicle, get treasury capital in it, and then be allowed to do a lot of creative things, um, that was all 
actually a precedent from the financial crisis, not COVID. Yeah. All COVID did is take that Bernanke precedent and build on it. And they did some really interesting things. TALF 2.0 mm. stabilized the mortgage market. Um, uh, the corporate bond issues, we can, companies have unlimited ability to issue debt and service debt, very thin bid-ask spreads, very low cost of capital right now. There's pros and cons within it all. Um, but the, but just like with shutting down the economy, just like with COVID, just like what actions we take on a daily basis, what actions we don't take, all of the things happening in a local, state, federal level, what people do in their portfolio, with the level of risk and reward they're trying to balance, everything's a matter of trade-offs. And it's not just that all of a sudden I've learned trade-offs exist. We all knew trade-offs existed. Yeah, they were reiterated, reaffirmed. We were reminded of them. But I think that what I am taking away from the last six months is that those trade-offs are inescapable and they're not talked about. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the trade-offs of zero interest rates, of Fed interventions, of CARES Act, of record deficits, of an economic shutdown, of an economic reopening. All of these things play into the medical, fiscal, economic, social, cultural realities. Well, a lot of it's the nature of uh, political decision-making. If the trade-off is in the future, then – they don't care. For sure. <laughs> well, I, I think that's true. But I think, I, I think that um, let, let's say even apart from the, the convenience of politicians trying to create a trade-off where the good part is now and the bad part is later, within a portfolio, mm. there's a trade-off where someone has a desired return and they have a desired risk level and those things are in a, a constant state of tension with one another. And I think too many people try to ignore it. Um, or or and, and or they try to address it by just simply pretending it isn't there. So I think that with the the COVID reality, there's a certain degree of risk in in society. There's virus infection exposures that that uh, are out there, and then there's also the risk you could you could mitigate the risk of COVID mm. medically um, with permanent shutdowns, right? But and then put the whole economy into a depression. Sure. So there's kind of extremes. I'm saying I'm saying even in the micro. Whether it's governmental decisions, as you talk about, science decisions, as everyone's trying to figure out all that stuff. But even just on our day-to-day -day basis, the decision-making that we're faced with on behalf of our clients, uh, I'm just very cognizant not only about the existence of trade-offs, but about the need to communicate about them, to remind clients of them, to just not pretend that we're not in a tension around risk and reward. Well, we've yeah. also uh, reconstructed the whole way we're thinking about reporting and you know, model portfolios as a result of uh, some, you know. Uh, Would you say that we're being... magnifying the truth <laughs> of trade-offs? It's a great word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think... So we're, yeah, we're living those trade-offs right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that that's exactly the point I was going to say, too, which is within all of the mayhem in the fixed income markets, one of the things that we've really done is delineate what those trade-offs are with certain risks that you would be taking rather than mix them together. And so, you know, and, and so some of our fixed income holdings are really going to be that trade-off of not a whole lot of return, but also something that is anti-correlated to, you know, equity beta and something that will, will be safe and sound and be happy with a low return because the trade-off is safety. And with the stuff that you don't, you know, with other risk assets, you know, we've just delineated them a little bit better, I think, instead of having it more mixed together. Mm. Well, if the threat of, of 2,000 people a day dying and the overloading of the American medical system um, that we were all very afraid of late March, early April went away, 
Um, and and some of the various factors of COVID, the idea that perhaps the economy is going to be shut down, you know, well into next year, some of those tail risk events that were just frankly awful, those things seem to be off the table now. But it sounds like we can all agree that what's still on the table are some of the policy ramifications of what was done. And that's where COVID in markets doesn't go away. That's where the D.C. today uh, takes over is we do still have to deal with the reality of zero interest rate environment. We have to deal with the reality of very liquefied credit markets. That could be a very good thing. But there will be challenges around deficits, around national debt. We have a very politically polarized society. I don't think anyone would argue that COVID has made it less so. The country did not come together around COVID like it did 9-11, like it did World War II. The country's further apart now. There's a lot of issues that still go on. I'm grateful that we're not having to pull a battleship into the Hudson River right now to try to put excess uh, medical casualties there. That we did that those things didn't happen. Thank God. Thank God. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we have more things that we're going to have to deal with, and there will be the opportunity and the need and the challenge that uh, your investment committee at the Bonson Group will be up for. Uh, thank you, Robert, Julian, Brian, and Dea. Thank you who have listened to the COVID Markets podcast over these last few months. And we look forward to many more opportunities to share uh, the kind of lessons we're learning and things that we're doing. Um, many of the topics that came up today will still be topics in front of us for weeks and months to come. Reach out to any of us anytime with any questions. We literally uh, eat, drink, sleep, breathe this stuff, and we want to be able to give you the answers you need. Sleep well at night to stay well and and be healthy and and we do very much hope that you will today be free appreciate your freedoms we say all these things because we mean them and we are grateful at the bonson group for a chance to serve you thanks for listening to COVID markets brought to you by the dividend cafe the bonson group is a group of investment professionals registered with hightower securities llc member finra and sipc with hightower advisors llc a registered investment advisor with the sec Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free risk. There is no guarantee that the investment process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Bonson Group and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the Bonson Group and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for any related questions.